The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. I'm going to read our scripture for today. So if you all can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, we'll read verses 17 through 22. If you're using the Bible from the back, it's on page 585. So again, our scripture reading for today is from the book of Hebrews, chapters 11, verses 17 to 22. You can stand for the reading of God's word. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. We thank God for his holy word. Morning, everyone. Let's get situated here. Okay. Please bow with me in prayer. Our great God, uh, you know, even as we've been singing about, we know that we are. Uh, the most blessed of people. You have given us everything. You have raised us up with Christ in the heavenly places. We, we have the greatest of gifts. All things are working together for our good. And the best is yet to come. So we're very mindful of those things today. We celebrate those things. And yet we're also aware that it doesn't mean life is easy or predictable. And we're aware also that that fact, that fact is because of the reality of sin, but that fact is also because you love us, because you have purposes for us in the uncertainty, sometimes in the pain. Help us this morning as we look into these things a bit closer. I pray that you would awaken what's um, asleep in us. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak in power today. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're back in Hebrews chapter 11, the so-called Hall of Faith. And the author here is reviewing the experiences of a number of Old Testament figures. Uh, He wants to show that the people of God have always been commended through faith. Faith is what pleases God. So he wants to inspire us by celebrating these people who trusted God when circumstances seemed impossible so that we also will not be of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but rather of those who have faith and preserve their souls. 
So the point of all these sermons in chapter 11 is going to sound a little bit similar. It's, you know, please God through trusting him. Um, it's, it's going to sound repetitious because ideally chapter 11 would just be one big thing, you know. Like look at all these people together. But it's so thick. It's such a thick chapter. And it's such an important chapter that we're breaking it into these bite-sized pieces so that you can hear again and again this essential message that God approves of those who have faith. Now, if you remember way back in November, we had talked about how by faith Abraham responded to God's word and he left the comfort and security of the thriving city of Ur of the Chaldeans where he was raised and he set out to uh, go to a hostile territory. And then uh, we thought about how that actually is kind of what faith requires of all of us. To set out from this world's city of destruction and to live as exiles and sojourners in this world. And because Abraham desired a better country, a heavenly one, therefore God was not ashamed to be called his God. And God is not ashamed to be called our God as we follow Christ through obscurity into the land of promise. For God has prepared for us a city. Well, in today's verses, we're going to look at faith a little bit less as a pilgrimage and more as a costly sacrifice. Faith is a costly sacrifice. And precisely because of that, it seems illogical to the people around us. Um, You know, faith gives us everything. But before we receive everything... Sometimes faith can feel like it's taking everything. Faith depends upon the trustworthiness of God. And because the world doesn't believe in the trustworthiness of God, therefore the world finds this type of faith, this costly faith that prompts costly sacrifice. The world finds it abhorrent. The world finds it offensive. And so, the world, the world is okay with us having faith, but it asks us to settle for a much safer kind of faith, a much lesser kind of faith. We have a tendency, whenever Christianity has been in a culture for some time, to domesticate this notion of faith, to view it as something kind of unthreatening, something elementary. We might say that faith is helpful to form a healthy outlook, or faith is necessary to live as a positive sort of person. But surely faith needn't lead to anything radical. Surely faith shouldn't lead to anything, you know, contrary to the prevailing winds in a flourishing society, right? Well, that was the view in Denmark in the 1840s. little history lesson. Pretty much everyone considered themselves a Christian. And so the National Church of Denmark was starting to lose its moorings. And its leader, Bishop Martinson, he described the church as the safeguard of a noble society, the keystone of the Danish Golden Age. And particularly, Martinson had made a speech declaring that it was time to move past the question of mere faith and move on to the more pressing philosophical questions upon which the future depends. You see, the notion of faith had been so cheapened that it had become mundane, it had become assumed, and really it couldn't be called faith at all from a biblical, a biblical perspective. And uh, so in response to Martinson's statements about going further than faith, his former pupil, the brilliant thinker Soren Kierkegaard, kind of went on a rampage. 
He wrote a whole book about Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. And that book is called Fear and Trembling. Fear and Trembling. I think we've got a picture of the, the cover. I don't know if you guys have that on the slides. Yeah, there you go. Um, a little bit jarring, isn't it? So in this book, Soren Kierkegaard argues, real faith is not domesticated. Real faith leads us to the place where we can only go on with fear and trembling. True faith is an affront to humanity. It, it isolates the faith-filled person from the priorities of the world, just as Abraham was quite isolated from the priorities of those around him when he went through with this sacrifice of Isaac. Faith just can't be arrived at through humanistic, human-centered systems of logic because they care only for the progress of society or for uh, the thriving of individuals in the here and now. And so in this sense, because faith is the most, one of the most impossible realities, um, there is no going further than faith. You can't go further. That's, that's the ultimate. So the highest ambition of any life is to attain faith. And I hope that as we think about this shocking episode from the life of Abraham, that some of Kierkegaard's disdain for a domesticated faith will rub off on us. I think we need that in our culture today. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the account of Abraham that we're referring to in, in verses 17 and 19, the whole account is found in Genesis chapter 22. And I'll summarize it. Abraham and his wife Sarah had one son. He was the heir to all of the promises that God had made to bless the whole world through this family. And we're told that after Isaac had grown up a little bit, God tested Abraham. He tested him and said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now the concept of a burnt offering, that's when you take an animal and you slit its throat and drain the blood and you put the carcass on the altar and burn it. This is the only time in scripture where God gives instructions like this. While, you know, human sacrifice frequently happened in pagan religions of the time, it was never an aspect of biblical worship. And of course, it's horrific for us to even contemplate the intentional killing of a 12 or 13-year-old boy. So what's going on here? Let's get some explanation out of the way so that you'll actually be able to focus on the faith of Abraham. What's going on? First, uh, spoiler alert, God doesn't let Abraham go through with it, okay? God tested him and then stopped him as he raised the knife. So child sacrifice is never endorsed by the Bible. And if you're, you're afraid, like, well, God tested Abraham in that way, so couldn't God test me in that way? No, it's not going to happen. First of all, this was 2000 BC. Things were a little more shadowy, okay? This was, you know, in progressive revelation. We're just kind of at the beginning. And uh, before any scripture had been written down, God was still revealing himself to humanity in some very embryonic ways. And so God spoke to Abraham audibly. This is like at least the fifth time that he had done this to Abraham. And God's normative way of speaking to us is not audibly, okay? Uh, he speaks to us normatively by his spirit through his written word. So when we look at the written word of God, um, the law of Moses that was given um, 500 years after Abraham, 
the law of Moses specifically prohibits child sacrifice. This is, this is who God has revealed himself more fully to be, someone who does not allow these things. So God will not act contrary to his word. So if you're tempted to think that, oh, well, even the very mention of, of a story like this in the Bible means that this is just a barbaric book, I want to challenge you to keep reading and to realize that the Bible's standard of caring for and treasuring children actually far exceeds that of our culture. But wasn't this a cruel or a terrifying thing of God to do? Well, terrifying, absolutely. It required that fear and trembling sort of faith. And I wouldn't be surprised if both Abraham and Isaac had like nightmares or PTSD for some time afterward. But their faith persisted. And we're going to read about Isaac's faith later. So why was this terrifying thing necessary? When we look at all of Scripture, we see that this severe testing of Abraham's family resulted in an incomparable blessing for Abraham's family. Remember that God's good purpose for Abraham's line, and, and, and for your line, this is, that's tied into your lives also, that God's good purpose isn't just to give Abraham or us happy, peaceful lives here on earth. If you thought that's what you were signing up for, sorry, that's not Christianity. That's not the end goal. That may be a byproduct at times, but that's not the end goal. It's not peaceful, happy here and now. See, God was molding them into his conduit for eternal joy and peace for peoples, all peoples of the world. So the, he's doing this out of kindness. He's doing this kindly, not cruelly. And he's laying out a situational prophecy to teach them about the future. What do I mean when I say situational prophecy? Let's continue with the story, and, and I think it'll become evident. So Abraham prepares supplies. He saddles his donkey. He takes a three-day journey to the specific mountain that God had designated. And, um, you know, Isaac himself carries the wood on his back up the mountain. And then he asks, My father, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So we've got Isaac wondering, where is the lamb? And we've got Abraham saying, perhaps better than he knows, God will provide it. And a substitute for Isaac does indeed appear. And then there's this enigmatic saying that's taken away from this incident. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, why did God make such a point of which mountain Abraham should go to? Like, if, if he's going to do this deed, why couldn't he just go a few miles from home, right? Well, 1,000 years later, King David would look up 
from Jerusalem and see an angel with his sword extended in judgment over the city. This was a time of pestilence. And then at that moment, by the mercy of God, the sword was held back. And in response, David built an altar on the site where he saw that angel. And then that's the same site where Solomon would build the temple. We're told in Second Chronicles 3 that this was Mount Moriah. So the Jewish people, even to this day, they see a connection to where Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac and then where so many lambs were sacrificed um, for the remission of sins. And um, if you want to get even more goosebumpy, even though we don't know the exact placement of Jesus' cross, there are possible locations of Jesus' crucifixion, either lower below the, the Temple Mount or higher up on the same slope, which all could be called the same geological formation, and all certainly would be within the area, the, the region of Moriah that was referred to in Genesis 22. Regardless, it's clear that Isaac's experience here is a prefigurement of the sacrifice of the greater son of promise. So a different beloved son would carry wood on his back to an appointed place in the land of Moriah. And instead of that ending a three-day journey, it would begin a three-day journey of darkness. And this descendant of Abraham and Isaac would not be spared. He would not receive a substitute. But instead, he would be the substitute for all of us. And where it says that Isaac was figuratively raised from the dead, a more literal translation there would say, in parable or in illustration, Abraham did receive him back from the dead. And it was an illustration. It was pointing to the resurrection of Christ. So it was God's kindness to provide Abraham's family and and all of God's people with this picture. Even we today benefit from it. It assures us in a very graphic manner that Jesus' death was no accident. But when on one end of scripture, Isaac asks, where's the lamb for sacrifice? On the other end of scripture, John the Baptist answers, behold the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. I hope you see this connection, and I hope that you worship our wise God who has orchestrated history in this way. He's, he's planned our salvation from the very beginning, and he's by no means left us guessing his intentions throughout. But in addition to serving as a situational prophecy of God's provision to come, we also see that both, both Genesis 22 and Hebrews 11 use this language of testing, that... Um, God was testing Abraham's faith. Did you know that God tests the faith of his people? Of course, God knows everything, right? He doesn't need to learn anything like, oh, I wonder what will happen if if I do this. No, the testing is for our benefit. The testing is so that we can learn something. Um, It's for our sake. Because a tested faith is a proven faith, and a proven faith grows. So think about it this way. If trees grow in windy places, they grow sturdy and their roots go deep they can withstand the unusual storms that come but if you have a tree that's been sheltered let's say by a building and it's not used to receiving much wind and then you tear the building down and the tree is suddenly exposed and then a large storm comes you got branches snapping off testing is what will ensure long-term strength in the New Testament book of 1 Peter, it says, Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the testing of gold by fire, that is how it's refined. That's how the impurities are removed from the gold. And then also in chemistry experiments, my wife reminded me of this, sometimes substances are burned in order to determine their components. The color that they burn reveals their purity or their lack of purity. So when the fires of testing come our way, do we burn with a pure flame or are contaminants revealed? Namely, the idols of our hearts. And so God used this test to purify Abraham's faith. How would Abraham know if he really loved God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength? And how would those who were meant to follow Abraham, to learn his faith, how would they know the nature of that faith if this test didn't occur? Only if, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And it wasn't an arbitrary test either. God had given Abraham so much. He'd given him wealth and respect. He gave him power after the battle of the kings. He gave him blessing from the lips of Melchizedek. But the gift, the only gift that really mattered for Abraham, the one that all of God's promises concerning his future revolved around, was Isaac. There was nothing Abraham could imagine for his own benefit that wasn't tied up with his hopes for Isaac. And that's why verses 17 and 18 point out that he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans, he sacrificed his past at that point. But here, in this test, he's called to sacrifice his future. And similarly, by faith, maybe we've made great strides in the past, but that doesn't give us the luxury to sit back and say that faith is accomplished. We don't have a right to say to God, hey, you've, you've already brought me through a lot of stuff. From here on, just keep your divine hands off of the good things I see coming to me. No way. For Abraham, in this test, it must have seemed like God's command to sacrifice Isaac was opposed, was contradictory to the promise that he had given to bless the whole world through Isaac and his offspring. It must have seemed as if God was being inconsistent. And if God is being inconsistent, can he really be trusted? My guess is that you face situations like that too, where you have to ask that question. Uh, Not situations where you have to wield a knife over a loved one, Maybe they feel that way. Um, maybe your loved ones feel betrayed by you when, when you choose God over them. But uh, because God loves us, because he wants to fan our faith into flame, because a mature faith is going to give us indestructible hope and joy, and it, it could lead to everlasting joy given to others through us, because of all those good things, God loves you too much to leave you with an insipid faith that's untested. Graciously, God graciously puts his finger on things that we're holding back from him in our hearts. Maybe it's people or possessions or identities or opportunities that we're tempted to elevate to God-like status. And so he will make us choose which one is going to be ultimate. God or career promotion. God or the admiration of your kids. God or romance. God or health. God or cherished memories of the past. God or money. 
God or control, God or peaceful circumstances. You get the idea. And sometimes the test only lasts for a few minutes. Sometimes the test lasts for a few years. Sometimes the tests are repeated and progressive in nature. Sometimes the tests last your whole life. And in all cases of testing, it is going to involve something that's precious to you. Something or someone that is precious to you. God's going to put his finger on that. Now often you don't know if you're being tested, right? You don't know. Am I being tested here or is this just persecution or is this just the nature of living in a fallen world? It's not like you can read narrator notes over your head like, after these things God tested Scott and said to him, no, we all, all we know is that things are awful, that circumstances feel horrible and we're forced to make choices that we never wanted to make. God is going to ask you to put things to death good things. He's going to ask you to put them to death. But when God corners us into a sacrifice situation, he is often protecting us from the idolatry to which our hearts are so inherently prone. He's orchestrating the whole world so that we will more fully discover the joy that is ours when we are fully his. Now Soren Kierkegaard does a brilliant job of speculating what it must have been like for Abraham to, um, to come to this place of obedience, his inward wrestlings. He must have gone over in his mind a thousand times. Did I really have this conversation with God? Did that, did that really happen? Or maybe he's like working it out like, well, could I make some sort of substitution that, that would basically get after the same things? Could I, could I sort of bargain with God the way I did when he was going to destroy Sodom? Um, you know, or maybe Abraham was uh, tempted to tell someone, someone who he knew would stop him. Maybe is the manager of his property or something, someone who would get in his face and say, Abraham, you're crazy. I am physically going to stop you from doing this. I don't, know, I don't know exactly what the temptation looked like for him. But finally, Abraham faced reality and he, he realized God really was requiring this of him. And then you can imagine there were probably sleepless nights journey was probably excruciating. The unexplained tears, the excessive words of affection for Isaac along the way, the weary steps, the dread, the pit in his stomach, you know, the fear and trembling. Even though we can imagine suffering like this, there's no doubt also from the text that Abraham was resolved in the matter. He was confident that something unexpected would happen. Abraham knew that this would not be the end of Isaac. He knew because God had promised. And Abraham believed God's words. And that is faith. Faith centers on remembering the very words of God and believing them. And we see this faith in how he tells his servants. He tells them, you know, Isaac and I will go, plural, and we will worship, plural, and then we will return to you. Plural. That's what he tells his servants before they go up on the mountain. And he tells Isaac himself that God will provide for himself the lamb. So we see this faith in Abraham, but, but how did he go through with it? I mean, yes, he had, he had faith. He was thoroughly convinced that God was trustworthy, but how did that faith work in him? What, where did his thoughts go as he was, did he just check out mentally? No, we read in verse 19 that he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. 
from which, figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive him back. When you think about it, it's actually not hard to trust an omnipotent God if you believe that he exists, if you believe that he rewards those who seek him. So you believe God is omnipotent, you believe God is generous. Well, then if something's taken away from you, it can always be restored. Always. In Abraham's case, he'd already seen God work miracles in even bringing about Isaac's life, right? Isaac was born when Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90. Abraham knew that God could reorient nature. So now apparently he was expecting, okay, I'm going to kill Isaac, and then God is going to raise him from the dead. Uh, It was actually much easier than that. Isaac didn't even have to die in the end, but Abraham didn't know that. Sometimes, as with Abraham, God does give the sacrifice thing directly back to us after the test. In other cases of testing, the Lord painfully takes precious things out of our lives, only to replace them in a deeper but different way after the test, such as, you know, we studied the book of Job last spring. At other times, though, the restoration may wait until our resurrection. And that's not a consolation prize. That's not some sort of airy-fairy, like, well, but this will happen, so it'll be okay. No, we do believe in the resurrection, don't we, Christians? This world where Isaac is laid on the altar, it's not all that there is. So, you know, this is a type of the things that are to come. That's why Jesus tells us to store up treasures, not on earth where moth and rust destroy, but in heaven where they can't be destroyed, where they do last forever. So Hebrews 11, faith, faith that God rewards those who seek him, it depends on understanding that faithfulness in this passing reality will lead to lasting reward one way or another. And this is just normal Christianity. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And in the very next chapter of Hebrews, we'll see that even Jesus had to look by faith to his resurrection in order to endure the cross for the joy set before him. And maybe some of us today are facing these sorts of situations. Maybe they're urgent crises. Maybe they're just lingering disappointments. And it feels like you're carrying around with you this death sentence. Well, Abraham felt that way. But he had the joy set before him of God's plan for the nations unfolding through his family. And God had told him specifically that it would be through Isaac. He trusted in that outcome, even if there had to be a resurrection to make it happen. Jesus had a sentence of death hanging over his head, but also a joy set before him of renewed fellowship with the Father and the Spirit after winning a people for God and ascending to the throne room of the universe. And you, whatever feels like a death sentence, you have a joy set before you of promised peace and belonging and fruitfulness and significance in Christ. Those things are promised to you by God's word. And much of that you will see in glad and surprising ways, even in this life. But in areas where you don't, rest assured, our God is not stingy. Every sacrifice will be more than worth it in the end. Hear this quote that I I found useful from a a British theologian, A.W. Pink. He says, The Lord has an absolute claim upon us, upon all that we have. 
as our maker and sovereign, he has the right to demand from us anything he pleases. And whatsoever he requires, we must yield. All that we have comes from him and must be held for him and at his disposal. The bounty of God should encourage us to surrender freely whatever he calls for. For none ever lose by giving up anything to God. None ever lose by giving up anything to God. That's the beauty of Abraham's faith. It trusts God with even his most precious treasure, the thing that in some ways defines his whole identity. So are we willing to do the same when that's required of us? No exceptions. If so, our faith will please him. And once we are tested and approved, our joy will be full and it will be contagious. Well, as mentioned, there's no totally smooth cutoff points in the middle of chapter 11. So we're going to go on. We're going to look at the same faith as exhibited in Abraham's son and Abraham's grandson and Abraham's great-grandson. Verse 20 tells us that by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. That's a very brief summary of a life. Uh, It seems fairly like a subdued experience compared to what Abraham was called to do, right? There's no... Um, forever journeys away from one's homeland. There's no uh, having to sacrifice a son of promise. But you know, sometimes it's like that. The faith, the sacrifices required by faith don't look the same in two different lives. And comparison is a very dangerous game. Okay, if you're going through something like Abraham, you feel like you're sacrificing something that is insane and feels like death, it will do you no good to look over at an Isaac and say, oh, okay, well, um, if only my faith journey could be as simple as herding livestock and raising healthy children, you know? But see, you don't know Isaac's struggles. Maybe it actually did take Isaac a lifetime of wrestling for him to simply come to terms with who he was before God. Maybe he had other struggles that weren't recorded on the pages of Scripture, but God knows them. And Isaac didn't have an easy time of it. His family life was a total mess. He clearly favored Esau as a, as a favorite son. That's a mistake that Jacob would then make in turn. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, she felt forced to deceive him. Esau was foolish. Jacob was a schemer. One had to run away because the other one was trying to kill him. This is a mess. But in the midst of that, God repeated the Abrahamic promises to Isaac, and Isaac believed them. And he taught his family about the covenant, and he invoked the future blessings, and he trusted God would bring all this about. So parents, I hope you see this, this simple life of Isaac before us. I hope you see that if you believe what God has said, and if you teach it to your children, and if you die blessing them with God's promises, then that is a life that God holds up as possessing remarkable faith. So I hope that that encourages you to keep going. Similarly, we read that by faith, Jacob, when dying, he blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, if you read the the accounts of these patriarchs in the pages of Genesis, there's a lot of parallelism from generation to generation. There's some generational sin that keeps repeating itself. And there's also some generational obedience that we see. And here again, we have a situation with a, a blind and aged father who is um, blessing his offspring, and he's inverting the blessing. 
Um, this happened in, in three generations, really. Um, so it's Isaac instead of Ishmael. It's Jacob instead of Esau. And here with Joseph's sons, we see Jacob blessed Ephraim instead of Manasseh. And this was by God's instruction. And this was trusting God and not the cultural norms of the day. Now, Jacob's life had been a fairly traumatic one. He had a lot of conflict in his family. He had the early death of his beloved wife, Rachel. He had wicked sons who did all kinds of horrible things. He underwent famine, a time of famine, and he believed for over a decade, maybe two decades, that his favorite son was dead. Can you imagine that? And then finally, in old age, he needed to pick up and he needed to move his whole family to Egypt. And he, had to, he also had to face the fact that it was his other sons who had convinced him that his favorite son was dead. That's messed up. And his story is one that reminds us that whenever we're sure of you know, what the life of faith looks like, whenever we, we think we know what God is asking of us, and it feels like, okay, pretty manageable. I'll, I'll live as a nomad. I'll you know, raise livestock like my father Isaac. I'll raise a family, and then God will... God will um, you know, bring the blessing further along through that. Instead, Jacob has this crazy journey. And I think that's instructional for us that um, what really matters is what you do with the unexpected losses and twists and turns in life. And with Jacob, we see that it was the making of his faith. Some people, when they reach those twists and turns, they jettison the faith. For Jacob, it made his faith. And in the end, he was able to lean over his staff and worship. And he thanked God for his faithfulness. And he prayed for God's plans to unfold in his descendant's life. So whatever we may lose in this life, a spouse, a child, if you lose peace, if you lose your home, may God grant us the faith of Jacob to stubbornly and sincerely worship. In verse 22, we read, By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. It always surprises me that out of all the things in Joseph's eventful life, this is a sentence that the Holy Spirit wants us to focus on here in Hebrews 11. Like, think about it, that, you know, Joseph had to trust God through cruel imprisonment, um, enslavement first, and then... um, um, false accusations, and then imprisonment. And then, you know, he's dragged suddenly, unexpectedly, before the most powerful leader in the world at that time. And he's, he trusts God through all of it. And through Joseph's faith, God saved millions of people, including all of the family line of Abraham. His trust in God also enabled him to forgive those wicked brothers who had plotted to kill him but then sold him into slavery. So, the omission of all of that, I think it should really make us think about what is here. This simple act of giving direction about his bones. What was that about? Well, Joseph made mention, or you could say gave reminder of the exodus of the Israelites. Hmm. That the exodus was 400 years after Joseph. So what is this talking about? Generations earlier... When God sealed his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he also said this, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. 
that's quite the looming prophecy to, to hand down in your family. Um, for Joseph, life in Egypt had worked out pretty well, right? He had served as Pharaoh's prime minister. He had married into Egyptian nobility. He had wealth. He had a political legacy. He had palaces. Uh, and his, then his, his whole family moved down to be with him uh, to survive the rest of the famine. Uh, that's, let's just cap the story right there, right? It's a happy ending. But Joseph remembered, somewhere along the lines, he remembered this prophecy given to Abraham by God. And he starts to put the pieces together. Hmm. I wonder if these centuries of servitude are coming. I wonder if they're going to be fulfilled actually through everyone coming to Egypt. He puts those pieces together. And, um, you know, it would have been easy for Joseph to tell his two boys. His two boys were half Egyptian. They had only known wealth and comfort. He could have told them, look, boys, some hard times are about to come on your cousins. So after I'm gone, it might be a good idea if you just kind of associate with your mom's family. Uh, That'd be a very natural thing to do. But he didn't do that. Because the storyline that steered Joseph's life was still the narrative of God's people. He fully identified with the people of Israel and the mistreatment that they were to receive. And so he reminded his his kinsmen of, of God's promise and he charged them to take his remains with them to bury him in the promised land when they were eventually freed from the servitude that was coming. He looked far into the future, and he had faith. And in Exodus 13, we read that when the Israelites left Egypt, quote, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. This is all very relevant to our living by faith because some of you have been or will be entrusted by God with power or influence or wealth or reputation in this life. And like Joseph, I hope that you see that solely as God's provision for you to do with, you know, for his glory, not your own. And then when it comes to death, when you have to part with those good things, like Joseph, I hope that your last words are not somehow about trying to preserve the family wealth or preserve the family legacy. Let your last words be about reminding your clan of the larger story here. Faith doesn't approach death with bitter regret. Faith doesn't approach death desperately trying to hold on to the good things we've gathered for ourselves, including our family. Faith enables us to approach death with excitement about the future, both for ourselves and for those we're leaving behind. Because we believe that God is trustworthy, we know that even death can't interrupt his plans for us in Christ Jesus. This is faith. It doesn't come from some sort of vague positive thinking or it's not just found in people who are simple or naive. Faith isn't just to be lived out in people who have easier lives. Faith is not a domesticated tool for improving society or for improving self. Faith is gritty Faith is often costly, and it's not logical at all if you're living for the here and now. Faith trusts the faithful one. Faith believes that he rewards those who seek him, even when it leads you to a place where you feel like you have a sentence of death on you. So I long for you to have this faith, and I long for us all to grow in it together. 
Lord God, like the patriarchs, we pray that we would have true saving faith. Faith that allows us to not easily be shaken by the turmoil that will come through different seasons of testing. And we know that these patriarchs weren't flawless in their faith. We're aware of that, but they did persist, and, and we see that faith did define their lives. So when we are tested, let us be approved as they are here in this passage. And God, make us willing to pay the terrible cost that your testing sometimes requires. And we ask this knowing that it will lead to our greater joy. In Christ's name, amen. Well, now as